Hello, I'm Chris Busky, Chief Executive Officer of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. I'd like to welcome you to a very special podcast, one where we'll have an open discussion with IDSA's president, Dr. Barbara Alexander. Dr. Alexander is Professor of Medicine and Pathology at Duke University School of Medicine, where she also serves as the Director of Transplant Infectious Diseases Service head of the Clinical Mycology Laboratory and director of the Transplant Infectious Diseases Fellowship Program. She has served IDSA on numerous committees and previously served on the IDSA board from 2013 to 2016. So thank you for being with me today. Well, thanks, Chris. Um, I, I really appreciate this opportunity to chat. So, Barb, you've been very active in IDSA for many years, but for those who may not know you well, can you tell us a little about your background? I'll actually start from the very beginning because I think it's a very important part of who I am. I grew up on a farm in rural uh, North Carolina. I had four older brothers, three of whom are currently living. My oldest brother is 77. My mother is still living and is 96. My parents were definitely children of the Depression and of a work hard and waste not mentality. Uh, you know, in addition to working hard and spending wisely, um, my parents also instilled in us from an early age to treat people fairly. And I guess looking back, I can say that my father also had a very strong influence on my long-term professional success. He really did treat me like he treated my brothers. I grew up hunting, fishing working on the farm with the tractors and other types of heavy equipment, just as my brothers did. I, I even drove a, a public school bus when I was a senior in high school because that's what my brothers had done. Simply put, my gender was never part of the equation when it came to setting expectations or determining what my capabilities or goals or aspirations might be, which, you know, when I reflect upon it now, I think was an absolutely priceless gift. So I'm very thankful for that. Interestingly enough, my, my research focus on fungal diagnostics and prevention over the years was um, also initially tweaked by, by my experience growing up on the farm. The fusarial wilt was a dreaded plague, and it was capable of taking out acres of tobacco. I didn't, as a child, exactly understand what caused it, but I did know from a very young age that it was a very bad thing, and it was spoken of in somber tones by the adults in the community. I guess, truth be known to me, I think more importantly than its impact on the tobacco crop at the time was that it would also leave us without tomatoes and watermelons for the season. I mean, if you are a child of the South, you know, you know what's a summer day without a cold watermelon to cool you off or a juicy ripe tomato and mayonnaise sandwich. But it was actually in college during my first formal course in mycology that I came to understand that the fusarial wilt was actually fusarium wilt. And it was caused by a mold called Fusarium oxysporum. And it was from that aha mama own that I was absolutely fascinated with, with fungi, uh, which led me to pursue a graduate degree in medical technology. And from there, I took a job as a medical technologist in the clinical mycology laboratory at Duke. Um, and that's where I learned to recover and identify pathogenic fungi from clinical specimens. I would, I would also say that it was during those four years in the laboratory, they, they were very formative. Um, I had daily interactions with the ID faculty and the fellows at Duke, and um, this is what ultimately led me to apply to medical school. 
specifically to apply to medical school to become an infectious disease physician. You know, based on my personal experience, I think it's absolutely true that the decision to choose infectious diseases as a specialty is um, made very early on, um, during or even prior to medical school. I would also take a minute here, if you will let me, to give a shout out to Drs. Carol Hamilton and Dennis Clements, who, um, when I was in the laboratory, um, they were ID fellows here at Duke at the time, so we'll just leave this in, it was circa late 80s. Um, they were rotating on their, uh, on the benches in the microbiology laboratory, and so it was through the conversations with these two individuals, kind of hovered over fungal plates and microscopes, that I began to seriously think about medical school. And then, you know, subsequently in fellowship, I was lucky enough to have two, two other amazing ID physicians as mentors. It was Drs. Barth Reller and John Perfect. And after almost 25 years, they continue to provide guidance and advice to me. And I'm just forever indebted to them both for opening doors and um, keeping me on track. I guess from there, after completing my um, fellowships in infectious diseases and medical microbiology, in 1999, I, I transitioned into the faculty position at Duke, and at that point, I was tasked with creating the transplant ID clinical service here and, and running the clinical mycology laboratory, which, um, as you mentioned, are, are two hats I still wear. Uh, over the years, my NIH-funded research is primarily focused on preventing and diagnosing invasive fungal infections in the immunocompromised host. I mean, I, during fellowship, it, it, it truly was traumatizing to watch fungal infections like fusarium spread um, in cancer and transplant patients, despite you know our best efforts. It's clear that we desperately need better diagnostics and better drugs, and so this is where I, I have chosen over the years to focus my um, personal research efforts. I've also created a transplant ID training program here at Duke for fellows, and um, for the last seven years, we have had the honor of having uh, an institutional T32 transplant ID training grant. To date, we've had 22 fellows that have participated in our program, and that's something that I'm very, very proud of. I think that um, being able to train the next generation of ID clinicians and, and physician scientists is incredibly important to the health of the nation and to our field. That, that's great to hear, Barb, and just kind of that, that common theme of how mentorship really influenced you, and then obviously you serving as a role model and mentor to the next generation is, is obviously critically important to this field moving forward. So kind of my next question would be, what would you like to share with the membership about how you plan to represent them in your leadership role during this incredibly challenging time? How is a, it's a really good question. I think first and foremost, I'm going to do my very best to represent IDSA and its membership with integrity, with transparency, and in an informed and responsive manner. More specifically, I will commit the time and effort that's needed to prepare myself in order to be knowledgeable on the issues we're facing. Clearly, I'm not an expert on all ID-related topics. No one is. However, I will have the support of a diverse executive committee, um, the board of directors, and the support of uh, all the members that are serving on the different IDSA committees. And I believe these members bring expertise in the different areas uh, that I don't. And I'm open to learning from these people who, you know, represent the leadership of IDSA. 
But I guess I would also warn the members that I am not shy about tapping, you know, non-leader members of IDSA, um, as well as external experts, just to get more informed or to gather more information so that I can make the best decisions for the society, or I guess not personally make them, but help help drive the best decisions for the society. I think most of my colleagues regard me as approachable and receptive um, to both ideas and feedback. So while we may not be able to tackle every single issue or, or commit to all of the you know, great important ideas that members will bring um, owing to you know, limitations in cost or the bandwidth that we have within the organization, I will um, promise to listen and I will hear you. And, and I will incorporate this information as we prioritize our societal goals moving forward. And, you know, as we consider also how best to liaise with other organizations and groups, perhaps IDSA can't take the leadership role on a particular initiative, but maybe we can liaise with another group that can. So those partnerships will be, will be really important. I, I will also hopefully, uh, not hopefully, I will, I'm going to work to promote solidarity among our members. You know, in the past month, we've heard and talked a lot about how we, we, we have to come together as a country uh, and put our political differences aside in order to get through this pandemic. And I believe our professional society needs to do this as well. Whatever our area of specialization within the field of infectious diseases, whatever our personal political views are, uh, we have to work together for the common good of public health and our profession. And um, we have a lot to learn from each other. I think, you know, the diversity of our membership is a really good thing, and we need to apply the unique knowledge that this diversity brings to help lead us out of this pandemic and, and actually to help prepare for the next and, and to move our profession forward as well. What you're saying there about kind of solidarity and kind of bringing the organization together, I think that's critically important to the, the future success of the organization. And just a quick fact for our members out there, IDSA currently has uh, north of 600 um, designated volunteer slots that they're all kind of working together towards the mission of the organization and advancing the strategic plan of the society. So I'm going to ask you a follow-up question about the strategic plan now. So of the society's newly approved strategic initiatives, which one will be your primary focus in 2021 and why? For those members who may not be aware of our um, 2020 through 24 strategic initiatives. Let me just run through them real quick. Um, the first is to optimize the development and dissemination of timely and relevant guidelines. Um, the second is to advocate for the value of the infectious disease physician in order to increase professional fulfillment and compensation. Um, the third is to facilitate the growth and development of the ID workforce. And then the fourth is to develop a new tool to serve as the leading U.S. benchmark to measure and drive um, progress on antimicrobial resistance. If anyone would like to review those in more detail, those initiatives and the path and reasoning that led us to their adoption are outlined in more detail on the IDSA website. I would just start, I guess we're following by saying that while each of these strategic initiatives are critically important, at least for the next couple of years, it's pretty clear that all will move forward under the lens of the COVID pandemic. And we have to be very purposeful in focusing the IDSA's resources, which are not limitless, 
in order to be able to make a meaningful impact on, on each of the strategic initiatives. And, and all of this, you know, while we maintain our response to COVID. So for this um, past year, you know, IDSA made incredible progress on our first initiative. I mean, developing and disseminating the COVID guidelines at breakneck speed. I've never seen anything like it. We've never been more responsive. And those efforts uh, will certainly continue. We'll continue to update the COVID guidelines, but we will also um, continue or start to work on revising some of the old guidelines, uh, archiving some of them, and, and creating others. So that work hopefully will, will continue forward. But um, my intent for this year, <laughs> and a long, long-winded response to your, to your question, is to focus specifically on increasing the value of the ID physician which I believe by default will also help us with the third initiative, which is to draw the best and brightest trainees to our field. I mean, we know from data that was gathered during the 2019 um, strategic planning process, it, it was highlighted that there's an absolute critical need to enhance professional fulfillment of ID physicians and um, to increase recognition of the value we bring by others. You know, importantly, despite past efforts by IDSA members and staff, we've tried to present the value of ID physicians to others, but, but you know, we all recognize now that these efforts have kind of fallen short of what our goals were. So the Board of Directors has determined that we definitely need a multi-year enhanced investment um, to be creative and, and to broadly intensify our efforts to foster recognition among policymakers and the public regarding the value of an ID physician. So, you know, like it or not, we've been too submissive in the past. There's a hesitancy to self-advocate. And while I get it, I mean, it's something that most of us are not comfortable with. It is absolutely critical that we step up and, um, and self-advocate now. No one else is going to do it for us. And if we don't increase our value, trainees will not choose to go into the specialty. The pandemic has proven how critically important our specialty and, and our expertise is. I would say, in fact, if there is a silver lining to the pandemic, it may be well that the, the publicity that, that our specialty is currently receiving through all the different media outlets, we will not have the spotlight forever. Um, no one ever does, but we do have the opportunity to make the most of the current publicity in order to emphasize our value and the essential contributions that we make to both policymakers and the general public. Um, I, I do believe that when people value a service or product, they understand the importance of investing in it. So, Barbara, I think that sets up this next question perfectly. So, not that we don't have plenty to do in advancing the society's strategic plan, but if you could think of maybe one thing that you hope to accomplish during your term, is there something that you could articulate there? You know, I think in addition to the, the strategic initiatives and growing the value of the ID physicians uh, and workforce, I think what I would like to do is involve more members in our advocacy efforts. You know, again, we simply must leverage our voices. Over the past two years, I've been amazed at the expertise and skill of the IDSA Public Policy and Government Relations Group. They're well-informed, they're well-connected, but, but they will clearly be more effective uh, with our help. Members of Congress absolutely need to hear from IDSA members. We need to provide our legislators with our, our unique frontline perspective. 
we need to let them know how federal programs or policies or funding is either supporting or, you know, as the case may be, hindering our local efforts. Um, not only to prevent and treat infectious diseases, but also to conduct research that is necessary to improve our response to infectious diseases. So I really do hope to, you know, encourage uh, our members to be more involved in our advocacy efforts. And, and I would point out that, you know, IDSA does have a member advocacy program. Uh, I didn't know too much about it uh, until the past several years, but it's an opt-in program that members um, can use to stay up to date on federal policies and uh, not only to stay up to date, but to get to get involved and stay involved. You, you don't have to have experience to get involved. There are some members uh, of the member advocacy program that are, are seasoned advocates, you know, while others just have participated on a few action alerts. but. You know, I've personally just visited my congressional representative's office for the first time last fall, um, and I, I have to admit I was a little skeptical, I was a little nervous, didn't know how it was going to go, but I will say that the IDSA staff made sure that I was well informed. They walked me literally through the process and made me feel comfortable, and it was a wonderful experience. And so I would encourage each of you to get involved with our advocacy program. Uh, again, they have the resources and training to help you hone your advocacy skills or, you know, even if you're not interested in, you know, visiting or, or talking with a, a congressman or woman directly, um, the program offers this monthly bulletin that highlights important news and initiatives that you can take part in. It's just really important for us as members to remember that when IDSA sends an email asking you to sign on to a letter or to email your congressperson, it's critically important that you do so. Collectively, our voice is stronger and our members' advocacy does make a difference. And the, the last thing I'll add to that, Barb, is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Uh, it, and it, it's so true on Capitol Hill as, as well. The more physicians and members we can get to advocate uh, on any particular issue, it raises the profile within what's, what's happening on Congress. So, so thank you for bringing that to the forefront. So next, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, and you touched on some of this in your, uh, at the beginning, but what are you most proud of in terms of how IDSA has responded to the COVID-19 pandemic? And then is there anything you think we should focus more on as we approach the winter months? Right up front, you know, I've already mentioned um, how nimble and quickly we re the response to be able to assemble, approve, and disseminate the rapid COVID guidelines, right? I mean, we were there um, as a board of directors and an executive committee. We discussed it. Our members responded. Um, they put in um, many hours, um, and we got those guidelines out. And I'm very, very proud of those guidelines. I think the other thing that I'm very uh, proud of is the a way we have been able to help message to the public how to protect themselves, how to prevent the spread and transmission of COVID. We've really become the public health uh, voice for the country. While our federal agencies have been, for you know, for lack of a better word, a little bit mired in the politics, unfortunately. And so our ability to stay out of the weeds with the politics and really um, to address what, 
you know, this, this huge public health crisis, I think, is something I'm very proud of. You also asked me what, uh, what we might need to focus on in the winter months. Clearly, with the transitions going on in the government right now, we are going to have to continue to be that voice. And this is more critical than ever in the upcoming months. It just seems incredulous to me being in, it seems like, embedded in COVID every day. It seems incredulous that there's so much misunderstanding and misinformation out there. And we have to be the apolitical voice that helps guide the public through. And I think that one of the things we can do is look to um, you know, developing partnerships with other similar groups to help amplify the messaging uh, for public uh, policy uh, and um, education. So, Barb, the last question I have for you, and, you know, thinking about the many hats that you wear at, at Duke, you know, how has being on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic prepared you for really understanding the needs and concerns of our members? If you could walk us through what that looks like for you. <laughs> you know, Chris, I don't know that there's a part of my life that COVID hasn't touched. I'm, I'm sure many of our uh, the people who are listening feel the same way. You know, I'm seeing on the front line the impact, for instance, of supply chain shortages on the microbiology laboratory. It seems like there's a constant influx of new and critically important information that we're being uh, bombarded with and that we, you know, as the infectious diseases um, experts are expected to stay on top of. I've had to personally hunker down and not only take my own clinical inpatient service call, but be on backup call, you know, in addition to regularly scheduled service time. We, I've been involved with the non-billable clinical side of the COVID-related efforts. So from this, it's you know developing the protocols to help manage and triage patients to and from the healthcare system, um, care protocols for their management in the system, efforts to educate other uh, members of the healthcare workforce. I have been the personal subject of a false positive antigen test while I was on the inpatient rounding service. And let me just tell you that a fast turnaround time on a molecular test is indeed critical. All that, and you know, I'm also uh, you know having the threat of clinical incentives and dollars held. So there's a direct economic uh, impact, even though I'm working harder than I ever have. You know, there's been a hiring freeze. Um, we've not been able to recruit new faculty and um, research coordinators, although we, we definitely need new faculty right now. We've had research on everything but COVID um, shut down, and now we're in the middle of trying to figure out how to restart it. Um, I have a 13-year-old son who, you know, I'm trying to work with his school to help figure out a plan for getting um, the, their, he, he and his classmates back to school face-to-face. I've, I've suffered through um, the local health department not really having a great bandwidth in terms of doing contact tracing and the nuances of having to interpret uh, the implications of um, the recommendations and changes to those recommendations that come from the CDC. I've also got a 96-year-old mama that lives with me that I'm trying to protect. So, um, oh yeah, and then we just went through like this fellowship recruitment uh, season virtually. I mean, <laughs> who thought we would ever see that? Um, so, I, you know, 
I have been on the front lines. I've felt the impact of COVID in a lot of different ways. And I'm going to take all of these experiences. I mean, how can I not, right? I bring all of these experiences uh, with me and they will help inform uh, my responses and my decisions as I try to leverage the resources of IDSA to help us all get through this pandemic. So, Barbara, I'd I'd really like to thank you for a really informative conversation, something I I need to share with our membership as well as when our members step into the role of president of IDSA, it's almost a full-time job. So, in addition to everything that you just went through there, you've got a second full-time job of almost being part of the staff team here. So, you know, we understand how critically important your time is to serving patients and being in the lab. But again, I want to personally thank you and welcome you as our our newest president on behalf of the staff and the members of IDSA. So for the latest information on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network at idsociety.org. I'm Chris Buskey.